how does seeing uh, what others do influence your behaviour? It absolutely does. And in, in positions of authority, in positions where we expect to, to be able to trust people, then not working within the guidelines, even if it's technically within them, but in spirit feels very different, then that influences the way that we all behave. That was Gillian Evans, Head of Health Intelligence at NHS Grampian, and we'll hear more from her later in the show. Hello, and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson Media that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode, I'll be joined by Derek Healy and Rachel Amory to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories, compiled and read by Alex Watson. Boris Johnson's former Director of Communications has said sorry for his role in a Downing Street party, capping off a week of damaging revelations for the Conservative government. James Slack apologised on Friday morning for the anger and hurt his leaving party in April 2021 had caused. Mr Slack is now Deputy Editor-in-Chief of The Sun newspaper. Home Secretary Priti Patel claimed it's likely there will be more national security alerts after a Chinese spy engaged in political interference activities on behalf of the country's ruling Communist Party. China denied the allegations late on Thursday night, saying it had no need to buy influence in any foreign parliament. Security Minister Damien Hines said the fact that the alleged spy, Christine Lee, was detected showed the intelligence system worked. And plans for a new way of funding nuclear power plants in the UK have cleared their final hurdle in the House of Commons. The bill would allow pension funds and other institutional investors to provide cash for power stations. But the plan for new nuclear plants is opposed by the Scottish Government, raising questions about the future energy supply mix across Britain. Thanks, Alex. Now, let's turn our attention to what's been happening closer to home. In this case, we're talking about a particularly famous home, Number 10 Downing Street, the official gaffe of Boris Johnson. To say this week's been torrid for the party of government would be an understatement, but however tempting it is to lay on thick today, it's probably time for a sober look back at what's actually been happening. It's hard to believe it's not even been a full week since the latest scandal um, erupted, and then overnight we got even more uh, to recap. Boris Johnson's faced multiple claims of parties and rule-breaking on his watch and while he was out during lockdown. But the government has steadfastly refused to say anything of substance, really, effectively hiding behind Sue Gray, who's looking into the rules and whether they were broken. On Tuesday, he sent out a poor junior minister to take the heat. On Wednesday, he finally apologised, but called it um, a work gathering. He lost the support of Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross, who's also an MP and a former junior minister, along with the MSP group in Holyrood. And reports this morning suggest the probe is already a whitewash in the making, but we'll have to wait and see about that one. And at the same time, as the media were being briefed about a a lack of so-called criminality, the Telegraph alleged two leaving parties at Downing Street the day before the Queen was mourning her husband at a socially distanced funeral. Coming up a bit later, we'll hear from an exclusive interview with Gillian Evans, the NHS Grampian Head of Intelligence. She had some home truths about behaviour in a public health crisis. But let's talk about the politics first. Derek, what can we make of all of this? We can rewind from the public fury and focus on the PM for a minute, although we'll we'll get back to that. Uh, And look at the politics. The the party's splitting. Douglas Ross is in a tricky position. What does this mean for him and for the party in general? It's been an absolutely incredible week in politics, really, hasn't it? Um, one of the most extraordinary moments, as you touched on, was 
Douglas Ross coming out and saying that, that Boris Johnson should go. I think part of that is because he's been maybe maybe painting himself into a corner a little bit by coming out earlier on and saying that if he attended these parties uh, or if he misled Parliament, he would need to resign. Um, and I think part of that's possibly also to do with what kind of impact these revelations might have on the Scottish Conservatives in particular coming up at the local council elections in May. You know, interestingly, Douglas Ross has had the firm backing, really, of of his MSPs and what appears to be a sort of growing chasm between the group at Holyrood and the group at Westminster. Um, the Scottish Tory MPs have remained far more guarded with their views, I think it's fair to say. What we've been told is that there's um, overwhelming support among party members and supporters in the North East, which is where you know, a lot of the Scottish Conservatives' kind of electoral fortunes lie um, for the position that Douglas Ross has taken on this. Um, and it is likely that the, I think they would have had May's elections in their sights when making um, their decisions here on on exactly what to do. Um, Douglas Lumsden, sorry, Douglas Lumsden, the North East MSP, um, told us he, he thought it would be really difficult for the Conservatives in Scotland because they're going to have to go out on the doorsteps. And I think the number one question they're going to be asked um, about this is, you know, why are you supporting a Prime Minister that's broken the rules? Um, what are you going to do? Um, this will make it a lot easier for them to answer that question. And I think that was probably right at the forefront of their minds. But it's, it's an incredible position to have, you know, ministers, Conservative ministers at Westminster, kind of describing... Scottish Conservative leader as, as, as a lightweight figure. Um, we had a really embarrassing moment where Jacob Rees-Mogg couldn't name the Conservative leader in Wales. I mean, it's just a, an absolute mess, an absolute mess. Um, and it's been extraordinary scenes. I mean, it's hard to know really where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Rachel, it's clearly causing a unique problem in Scotland beyond the sort of the, 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 the outright anger and the public backlash. And the crisis or circus, whatever you want to call it in, in politics, reached... Holyrood, the day after Prime Minister's questions where um, Boris Johnson was having to take the heat while steadfastly maintaining that these were all gatherings and it was all fine. Um, Nicola Sturgeon wasted no time to rub salt into the wounds and raise the prospect of independence being an escape shoot for Scotland, as you would expect. We'll, We'll talk more about that in a second, but first let's hear what the First Minister had to say in the Scottish Parliament on Thursday. I call Audrey Nicholl. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister if she agrees that the unmasked disdain the UK Government has shown in the last 24 hours for their own colleagues in Scotland, dismissing their Scottish leader as a lightweight, makes it crystal clear that Scotland needs to become an independent country so we can escape the sleazy, corrupt and criminal Westminster system for good. I, um, I think, as we've just seen, have big political differences with Douglas Ross, uh, but even a high, I'm not as derogatory about him as his own Tory <laughs> colleagues uh, are being. Uh, you know, not, not a big figure, lightweight. These might be personal insults directed at the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, but actually they say something much deeper about the Westminster establishment's utter contempt for Scotland. Uh, If they can't even show basic respect for their own colleagues, what chance do the rest of us 
have. The fact is, Westminster thinks Scotland doesn't need to be listened to, can be ignored, and now we're being told we have to thole a Prime Minister that his own colleagues think is not fit for office. Presiding uh, officer, independence is fundamentally about empowerment and aspiration. But you know what? An added benefit of being independent is that we'll no longer have to put up with being treated like something on the sole of Westminster's shoe. And I suspect today even Douglas Ross finds that a really attractive proposition. Oh, well, there we go. I mean, uh, fairly expected that the, the leader of the SNP would would get straight back into the Constitution. But is it really a constitutional problem here? I mean, is there a double-edged sword? I mean, if the SNP don't have Boris Johnson opposite and there's perhaps someone more generally electable or palatable across a UK audience, does that actually make things right back to square one? Rachel, do you think that this is um, something that the public in Scotland want to hear right now? Um, is it a constitutional problem? Well, I think it definitely shows the difference in in politics in Scotland and in sort of south of England, I suppose, because I think regardless of whether you support Douglas Ross and the Scottish Conservatives, I think you still hold them as being fairly important in Scotland. I think the Scottish people do as well. So I think that's a big thing that's sort of shown this this week has shown that it, it, people don't in Westminster maybe don't realise how people in Scotland are thinking about politics. I think that's maybe one of the big things there. Yeah, of course, Nicola Sturgeon was going to jump on the independence um, uh, line that was guaranteed to happen. But it is interesting because I think the the sort of general disdain in Scotland for Boris Johnson does help the nationals, doesn't it? it? It does help them because it's a huge point. They've got, well, you don't like Boris Johnson. Here's a way you can get out of that is by voting independence. Yeah, of course, um, other parties would, would then point out that, you know, Boris, is independence the answer to, to this problem or is a different prime minister or a different um, party in government? I mean, that, that's that's the test. We, we keep saying it's a big test for Boris Johnson, um, you know, when he was at PMQs and things like that. It was also a big test for Keir Starmer because, I mean, he's, he, he is at the moment the, the man waiting in the wings who is the leader of the, the official opposition um, across the UK. I mean, he, he's the man that needs to sort of prove whether or not there is an alternative at that level at that point. So, yeah, I mean, as as ever, there's a bit of three-dimensional constitutional political chess going on. But, um, but Derek, I said we'd get back to the public reaction. Um, one image stands out above all others, and that's the Queen in black mourning her husband the day after two parties were apparently held by Downing Street staff at number 10. Um, the, we're told that the Prime Minister was not there, he was at Chequers. Um, we've, we've discussed the domestic politics, the constitutional issue. What about the simple outrage from a, a public who might not think Boris Johnson should be in post at all? I mean, is he ever electable after this? And are images like the one we saw of the Queen really the thing that lingers in people's minds? Well, I mean, it's a horrendous optic to have, isn't it, with some of the front pages this morning. I mean, I think we've, we've talked before about how the kind of old standards of, of what would lead to a Prime Minister resigning have gone right out the window. I mean, I think there's, if you look right back to things like the uh, alleged relationship that Boris Johnson had with Jennifer Curie and then having, him, having her involved in um, business trips and public contracts when he was London Mayor, if you look at the situation over PPE, if you look at the situation over the sort of sleaze allegations and the scandals that we had there, this has been building and building and building. 
this situation with the parties has, has been just the latest and it really I mean, it's been absolutely a torrid few months for him mm-hmm. um, but there is something particularly striking about that image of the Queen sitting by herself um, that I think really resonated with people beyond politics, beyond you know what the Queen's role is in society I think people could relate to that and see that in their own families so it's particularly galling isn't it? I was going to say our front pages were, were, were full of those images yeah. at the time and in this week when this was happening, everybody it seems had a memory from you know lockdown where they were doing something particularly um just you know sad or, or or something that affected them on an emotional level personally whether it was a funeral whether it was the the, the relative that they couldn't visit that time or the the sacrifices that everyone's been making um it, i think you, you could feel a sort of collective slap in the face going on there um but while we're on the subject of the public health rules, the the social distancing, the way that we were all supposed to be trying to to keep everybody safe during a a, a pandemic. Um, you know, we're told that the rules were being broken and other people weren't following these public health rules. At the start of the recording, uh, we we mentioned that we had spoken to Gillian Evans from NHS Grampian. Rachel Amory spoke to her about the 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 wider implications on trust in government and began by asking her whether uh, trust can be restored. I mean, it's, it's, it's well understood, isn't it? You only need to read the newspapers to know how people felt, feel about uh, blatant breaches of rules where they've occurred um, when so many people have been following guidelines and doing their best and, and making considerable sacrifices. And it does change the, the public perception. So if, you're, if your question's about how, how does seeing uh, what others do influence your behaviour, it absolutely does. And in positions of authority, positions where we expect to, to be able to trust people, then not working within the guidelines, even if it's technically within them, but, uh, but in spirit uh, uh, feels very different, then that influences the way that we all behave. And we saw the effect um, it's through the Dominic Cummings uh, situation um, uh, way back in the summer last year, uh, when uh, the, the, the changes to people's behaviour, compliance with guidelines dipped as a result of that because it's a loss of trust um, and a feeling of unfairness. So it is important for leaders to demonstrate leadership and and uh, compliant behaviour and lead by example because it's so relevant at the moment, isn't it, when we're hearing unfolding um, a, a number of situations where people have, have believed that uh, there are workarounds to these rules uh, that so many of us have complied with. So it's about fairness, it's about being clear about the rules uh, with people and about demonstrating that you too are part of that. And you know, another thing to say, a lot of people talk about, well, I see lots of people not wearing masks, I see lots of people not behaving, uh, more people getting together in groups when at times when they shouldn't. Um, at the same time as, as some people aren't showing regard for rules, the vast majority of people, particularly in Scotland, have shown a high degree of compliance with things like mask wearing, social distancing when that was relevant, um, and generally uh, very high compliance uh, within the rules. So we mustn't get too um, upset by, uh, well, we should get upset, but we, we, you know, we must remember that whilst there are some people who have blatantly disregarded the rules, the vast majority of people in Scotland have continued to comply. Uh, and, and for that, um, we should all be very grateful. Absolutely. Do you think there's a way for those in Downing Street to regain that trust in the public health message? 
That's a really difficult one. How do you regain um, a loss of trust um, as significant as that? Well, the situation is far from over as well, isn't it? You mm -hmm. know, every day there's something new. Um, I think it's really difficult to to, ha to to regain that trust. I think the Scottish situation is, is very different. Um, uh, we haven't had the same um, situations to the same extent. I mean, we did at the start of the, the pandemic, didn't we, with the, the chief medical officer and, and, and a breach of, of rules then. Um, fast action on that helped to uh, just help to secure, shore up that position, I think, in the public's eye. Um, but but the regaining of trust um, is is about being honest um, and uh, and taking personal responsibility. Um, uh, also, I think the difference in Scotland is that we've had we've had information which has been pretty constant, um, reliable, accepting when we don't know something, uh, but not holding back information as much as possible. I think, and to have a constant presence of communication through. Briefings, I think, has really helped us, and that helps to maintain public confidence and trust, and a feeling of we're all in it together. So, I think, I think our situation in Scotland, you know, notwithstanding the um, what we what we've been hearing about in in uh, in in England and in Downing Street, uh, and the situation's different here. But I think there are other things which have helped to uh, develop trust um, and and maintain trust uh, in the Scottish system. Uh, and a lot of the visibility of a lot of our leaders has really helped with that. Thanks, Rachel, for 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 that interview. There was a lot of um, uh, home truths, I think, there for, from Gillian Evans. I mean, this is a uh, someone in a in, in NHS Grampian, um, probably articulating a lot of um, the, the the things that the public are thinking right now, and it goes way beyond the political knockabout when we start to to drill down into how. At all at all stages, you know, people are angry. People are looking for answers. I know that there is a an independent investigation um, from Sue Gray coming along, but um, it's almost it's almost a side issue now. I mean, the the court of public opinion is is so far pretty clear, and this is, you know, we've got M MPs and MSPs splitting on the issue. We've got um, calls for resignations at basically all levels of political. Um, thought in the country um, so I mean let's finish right back here with public health and the government response I mean the week started before the Downing Street chaos with a, with a hint that we might not be getting lateral flow tests free of charge much longer um, so while while we're all thinking about public health measures um, we the government's also setting the policy which um, we expect it to follow and they're making the rules for us so we had an update on the COVID rules in the, uh, at the start of the week. We had uh, a bit of a stushy broom on how we pay for all of this. Rachel, you had you had a, a dig about earlier this week to see how other countries are dealing with the pandemic and how perhaps the, the, the public are asked to respond. In particular, we were looking at whether or not we might actually start having to pay for tests. This will have a knock-on impact in the way that we perhaps perceive the level of the emergency and whether or not this is a, a universal thing anymore. How do we, will we be paying for these ubiquitous lateral flow tests um, in Scotland? Can we assume they'll be free like we expect on the NHS? What, what did you learn from that? Well, this all comes after the Sunday Times um, report at the weekend, which suggested that lateral flow tests will eventually at some point no longer be free. Um, and obviously we're asked to test, over Christmas we were asked to test every single day. So we're asked to have a lot of reliance on these tests. 
Um, the UK government has said they don't recognise these reports. Tests will be free for as long as is necessary. Now, obviously, there's a difference between as long as necessary and free forever, um, which is quite an interesting thing to have a look at. So we were having a look at what happens with at-home testing in other countries. And there's actually... Um, not very many countries actually do give out these tests for free all the time, um, which is quite interesting. In countries like France, um, Ireland, the Netherlands, they're just a couple that are nearby us. They all charge for at-home testing. You can, for example, pick them up in the supermarkets um, in France. And they're all about sort of five euros, um, for example, um, in Sweden, um it's about the equivalent of about five pounds. Um, so it, it's it's not a lot of money, but we must also remember that that probably is, I mean, only a few months ago, we were talking about the 20 pound universal credit cut. If we're then asking people to pay potentially five pound every single week for a pack of these tests, it's a, it could have a big impact. Um, but it, it depends. I think the attitude is very different in other countries. I mean, if you look at Australia, for example, the Prime Minister there, Scott Morrison, he's very much said this should be left to the private market and has said we can't just go around and make everything free. So it, there's a very different attitude towards paying for something like that in other countries than there is here. I think that's just because we're used to having the NHS, isn't it? No, I wonder, Derek, looking at the two sort of things we've been talking about today, um, this idea that if we start charging for for lateral flows or they start to become uh, less important, um, are we kind of getting more of a mindset into what the thinking was at the the top of the UK government all along? Um, where you know, just I mean, remember, nearly two years ago, we were just talking very much about you know whether we should just basically grin and bear it, just walk off into the pandemic and let it wash over us. This herd immunity thing um, that changed, but. You know, we're going back that way now. It does feel a little bit like that, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's a weird one because in some respects, we are sort of letting this Omicron wave just move right over us. Um, but in other respects, we still have some restrictions in place. Um, it does feel a bit of a move to, more towards that sort of, you know, let it let it move among us, let us, let's live with it type thing, which is a phrase we've heard quite a lot. Um, I mean, I think that the reality is that even if it's five pounds, I mean, it's going to be prohibitive for some people to be able to test regularly. And I think if you've if you've had COVID and you're you know on the way on the way out of it, it's quite reassuring to be able to test yourself and and see that you have got that negative test. Um, it is something. I mean, because a lot of people now are are going to be testing at home with lateral flow tests as opposed to the PCR. You know, to to make it even more difficult for for testing to be done, it is kind of just leaving people to their own devices, which is quite a scary thought. After this has been, you know, a pandemic that's caused caused a lot, you know, taken a lot of lives, and it's been big news for for years now. Um, so yeah, it's quite a scary thought to think that people wouldn't be testing, and or it'd be more difficult for people to be testing. I'm not even sure people would test as much if they were charging. And the articles we've been putting out on social media about this. The reaction has very much been, I'm not paying for it. I won't do these tests once we have to pay for them. So I think they will see a dip in compliance with that if this was to come into place. Yeah, I think you're on something there. Anyway, that, that's that's all we have time for this week. Um, thanks to Derek Healy and Rachel Amory and producer Morvan McIntyre. And of course, to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more. But until then, and even after then, 
pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. Cheerio! The Stushy is the politics podcast from DC Thompson Media, bringing together political journalists and commentators from all over the country so that you can be better briefed. Teams at The Courier, The Press and Journal, The Evening Telegraph, Evening Express and The Sunday Post work hard day and night, online, in print and beyond, to bring you careful reporting and analysis designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, in Westminster and in our communities. So you don't miss an episode, follow The Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know folk like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune into the Stushy or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. You can get a free month of unlimited access to The Courier or The Press and Journal too. Just go to thecourier.co.uk slash subscribe or pressandjournal.co.uk slash subscribe or follow the links in the episode notes to be better briefed. Check the episode notes for details and terms.